Welcome to the How Soccer Explains Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership principles through the lens of the beautiful game. Welcome back to How Soccer Explains Leadership. Thanks again for your download. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. I have a very exciting moment in my life. I get to interview one of my old coaches, one of my good friends, Clyde Best. Clyde is a member of the most excellent order of the British Empire, a distinction that not many get. He is a Bermuda native who played for West Ham from the ripe age of 17 in 1968 to about 1976. He played in the NASL as well, managed the Bermuda national team. He actually owned a dry cleaning business, if you can believe that. And he's most known for his coaching of some young youth clubs, youth players in Southern California, namely the teams I played for, the San Clemente Soccer Club. Many of you may not know that, but that is actually the the biggest distinction in his life from his perspective, at least as far as I'm concerned. So without more from me, I'm going to save all the formalities for the end of this conversation as far as where you can connect with us and all that. So if you want to know all that, wait for the end. But I want to get right to it with my friend, my mentor, my coach, Clyde Best. Clyde, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing fine, Phil. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. Better that I get to talk with you and share uh, your wisdom with all the people that are listening in. So with that, as I start most most of my conversations, I just want, for those who the people who don't know you, I know they could just Google you, but I think better than that, they can learn from you. Just a little, you know, part of who you are. If you can briefly share your story, really focusing on your football and your leadership experience. Definitely don't want you to leave out your family too, not that you would, but want to just hear about who you are a little bit. Yeah, as you said just now, my name is Clyde Best. I'm originally from Bermuda. I left Bermuda as a 17-year-old to go play professional soccer in England. And at a club like West Ham United, who had three World Cup players at the time, Bobby Moore, Jeff and Martin Peters. And to be in that same company during that time was unbelievable because when I was a kid in Bermuda, I used to imitate Jeff Hurst. And my friend Roger Hunt would imitate Martin Peters. And then a year later, I was playing with the three guys. And West Ham was a great, great club at the time, still is today. We had lots of world-class players there. People like Trevor Brooking, John McDowell, Graham Patton, Frank Lampard Sr., so Harry Redknapp. So we had people that knew what the game was all about. Being at a club like West Ham, we were known as a club that developed their own players. And most of the players I've just called names for old homegrown players from West Ham because we've never had the money to be able to buy players like your Manchester United and Chelsea and people like that. We had to produce our own. A good friend of mine that you might remember from America as well was Clive Charles. Mm-hmm. Clive Charles and I played in the same youth team. As a matter of fact, when I first went to England, his mum took me in and I stayed with her for a couple of years. Well, it was supposed to be a couple of years, but I stayed with her for about six or seven years, you know. Mm-hmm. And she was a, like mother to me away from home. So with the Charles family, it helped me to grow as a person and an individual because of the way she treated us all. And it was three of us. John was Clive's big brother. He was at West Ham, Clive, and myself. And then came along a person like Eddie Coker. And, you know, we've been known to produce good, good players. Clive, Eddie, and myself, we were the first three black players to play in England at the same time. And it was a match against Tottenham Hotspurs. And we were all under 19 years old at the time. And we beat Tottenham 2-1 that day. And... What was amazing, the manager at the time was Bill Nicholson. And he came in and he told our manager, who was Ron Greenwood, he had never seen people so young play the game the way we did. Hmm. We were brought up in the right way to play football, let the ball do the work for you, learn to pass, run off the ball. And we all those things came naturally to us because of the coaching that we had with Ron and John Lyle. So... That's where it all started for me. And I would always be grateful to the Charles family and a club like West Ham for giving me a chance to display my talents worldwide. Yeah, that was something that 
you know, what I neglected to mention at the beginning of this, and I want to make sure folks out there, if you want to learn more about all of this, Clyde has an autobiography out there called The Acid Test, and we'll get into what that means here in a few minutes. But I strongly encourage you to go out there. There's a whole lot more about all these different things that we're going to talk about in that book, and you can get the whole backstory about how Clyde ended up in in England as a 17-year-old, which is a great story in and of itself, his background, all of those great things. And so we can obviously only scratch the surface in this interview, but I did want to make sure that you know about that, and you can go out there and you can grab it. As you went, you played for years in Westham, and we'll get into some of those lessons you learned from that time. But after your time in England, you went and played in the NASL for a while. Actually, while you were in England, you got married to your beautiful wife and had a daughter as well. So can you just talk a little bit about that, what that was like as a young guy doing that, playing the game, what you learned from those things? Well, the most important thing to remember at our club, our manager at the time always encouraged us to get married, have a family. You know, it makes you a more settled person. And, you know, you listen to the elders. And most of us at the time at the club that were in the first team anyway, everybody was married. So you as a young person, as you came through, you just followed suit. And I was lucky enough to marry my wife, who was from the same country as me, Bermuda. And we went to England and our daughter, Kimberly, she was born in England. So we tease all the time. We tell her, you're a foreigner in our country. <laughs> That's what it was all about. And we done it. And... We've been now there for gone 40, going on 47 years. So it must be something going on that makes it last that long, you know? Yeah, definitely. So as I said in the intro, you went and played in America. And if I remember correctly, part of that move was because of family. Am I right in that recollection? Um, Not so much because of family. I went there because they were just starting soccer at a professional level in a sense. And I had an opportunity to go and play. So my main goal for going, I could have stayed in England and played. But my main goal was to try and give something back to other people. And I was always brought up that way. You know, you're not playing for yourself. You're playing for other people, help other people along the way. And going to America, that was one of my big, big things. You know, I'm going to try and make soccer a top priority in America. And once you see all the players that came, I was one of the first ones. Then you heard Pele's coming, Johan was coming, Rodney Marsh was coming, Ron Davis. I think, I'm not sure if Pete Osgood had a chance over there. Alan Hudson at Seattle. So we had Carlos Alberto from Brazil. You had Georgia Canaglia from Italy. You had Franz Beckenbauer from Germany. You had Johan Nieskens from Holland. Ben Reisbergen from Holland. Good friend of mine, Vim Subir from Holland. So I felt that it was a good move for me. And it paid off because when you look at soccer in America today, and you see where it is, we know that we all played a good part in the development of soccer. And we had some good coaches, people like Renis Mikkels, who was a famous coach from Holland, Gordon Jago, Eddie Fermani, Peter Shaw, Peter Wall. So we had a lot of stars playing football at that time in America. I first went to Tampa Bay Rowdies that first year. We won the championship. Then from Tampa, I was traded to Portland, Oregon, which is one of my most favorite places in America. From Portland, I went to Holland. I went at a stint in Holland with Feyenoord. And from Feyenoord, I had to come back to Portland. And from Portland, I went to Toronto. After Toronto, with the weather being so cold, I said, hey, <laughs> it's time to call this quits, you know, because it was so cold up there. I couldn't take that. I mean, it was colder than England. I played some indoor soccer in Cleveland and ended up finishing. I called my friend Clive, and he was in California. And I told him, hey, that would do suit me. It's nice and sunny, and I like that. That's right. So we made arrangement through Peter Wall for me to go to California. And that's where I ended up. And it was one of the best moves in my life because California is one of my most favorite states in all of America. And I would always be have a special spot for California because the weather suits me fine. Coming from a place like Bermuda, you know, yep. with sun every day and coming to California and place like Orange County, it was great. And meeting all of you guys and working with you all, it gave us a good 
footage to be able to get into coaching. Like you said, I had ended up with the Bermuda National Team. So it all started from Woodbridge High School. Once I finished playing, I said, it's time to give back, end up coaching in Woodbridge. You went to... Um, what was the school on? That was Anime. We always used to play against you. The Mission Viejo Diablo. Mission Viejo. That right. That's right. That's right. Mission Viejo. And in those days in California, high school football was big, big. Yes. I don't know what it's like now, but in those days, it was like a war, high school against high school. And it was nice. What really pleased me about that, some of the guys from that era, went on to be professional players. I know Joe Mo Maximore had a stint with, I think it was Everton. Who else was it? A, little, a fellow named Johan Karoski. I think he's now had a team in Los Angeles. We had him. We've had Brad Wilson, yourself, your brother, Tinsley. It's funny, Martin called me on Sunday. He was walking his dog in the park in California. He bumped into Tim Wilson. Remember Tim? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was so many guys that we had met and created friendships and met the families that are long lasting relationships. And that's what's really been good about being able to play soccer professionally. I tell all my nieces and nephews, I can go in the world, anywhere in the world, and someone I know. And that's from playing soccer. And that's what I really appreciate about having the opportunity to be able to come to America and help develop something that was taking off. And what really helped it, um, the guy that was commissioner of the North America Soccer League, he played for our club in England, West Ham, Phil Wooslam. And he's not no longer with us, but he done a good job putting soccer on the map, in a sense, in North America. I know I, for one, am very, very glad you came to North America, came to Southern California in particular, and were able to right. just spend some Great time with me and, as you said, my brother and some other folks. I mean, that, that really was an amazing time. I remember playing against Ante Razov and Frankie Hayduk and, and right. Eddie Lewis and, and all those guys growing up. And that was all just in Southern California, a bunch of guys who mm. made that national team, not to mention Joe Max, who went to Mission Vale High School right. as well. And Julie Foudy was in that same graduating class. Right. So it's just amazing to see what came out of that. But going back to, to you and what you've learned from the game, I mean, with that vast vast experience from playing in your teen years in English First Division to coaching in Bermuda in the late 90s and then just being part of the game for most, if not all, of your life. What's your favorite? I know this is really an unfair question. It's not necessarily as unfair as saying what's your favorite kid because you only have Kimberly. But mm. what is your favorite football memory? Well, being a professional player is a favorite memory because most people don't get that opportunity to be in that arena. And once you're in the football arena, you meet so many different people. So you are able to make so many different connections and friendships. And as I said to you earlier, I can go practically every part of the world and I've got a friend mm -hmm. and that's through playing football. Pelly calls it the beautiful game. He's telling us the truth. Yeah. I tell people all the time, Whenever a goal is scored, what happens in football? Celebration. Every, everybody dashes to celebrate and hug one another. Mm -hmm. We don't look at the color of a person's skin. It doesn't make any difference. We're happy. And we run and hug and congratulate one another. And one of the things I would hope and pray in my lifetime is that we all learn to get along and respect one another and not hate one another because of the color of a person's skin, you know? So through my experience in football, that is something that I would always lean towards to try to get rid of. Because as I tell people, the ball doesn't have any eyes. It doesn't care what color you are. Once there's a goal, everybody is happy. That's right. There's no reason why we can't be like that in life. And that's one area I want to camp out on a little bit, and we'll get mm. back to some of the other stuff. But this whole idea that you just talked about, one of the areas, and we talk, this whole show is about the life and leadership principles we mm. can learn from the game of soccer. And that, what you just talked about, that we are, you know, we're not all the same, but we're all unified in the fact that we're all humans. And we're right. all part of this human race that we are mm. together. 
And I just want you to talk about that idea, the, the, the racism that is still, unfortunately, obviously, part of what we're fighting against in, in the game and in our world today. But when you were, we talked about that, the acid test is the name of your autobiography, that I want you to tell that story if you could. But then I really want you to focus on how you handled the racism that was leveled against you as you were playing and what that can teach us about leadership and what that can teach us about how we can hopefully engage the conversation today as well. Well, Phil, as I've said, um, going to England as a young 17-year-old, one thing my dad always taught me in life is that you're not playing for yourself. You're playing for all those coming after you and all those people that are working in the areas of work that they're working in, that are struggling, that need help. And my thing was that if I go there and they see me doing it and I perform well, they might want to be in my position one day. And that's the way I learned to get involved into certain things. As I said to you just now, the ball doesn't have eyes. It doesn't know what color person is kicking it, you know? So we as human beings have to learn to put that aside when it comes to what color are you and just get on with what we got to do because, you know, life at best is brief. We don't know how long we're going to be here, when he's going to call on us to come and do what he wants us to do. And I believe in that sort of stuff, you know, because as I said, we can take two little babies tomorrow and we can put them in the same crib. What do you think them two babies are going to do? They're going to hug one another. Yeah, they're not going to look at one another, call each other names or scratch each other's eyes out. You know, so it's a lot of stuff like that that we can learn as grown-ups. I mean, going other days where you look at a person and you want to beat him up or fight him or scratch him because of the color of his skin. <laughs> you know, that's not normal. Not not today, you know. Okay, it's still happening, but we have to find a way to get rid of that because it's, it's nonsense. I mean, you look at your mom and dad when they first met me, Laurie, Martin, you welcome us with open arms. You know, and that's the way life should be and is. You know, and it's always been that way for me, from my friend Clive Charles's mom, who was a little white lady in England in the 50s that had married a man of color. And she had these children. What could she do with them? She couldn't disregard them or throw them away. She had to bring us up. And I entered the family, and I was another one of her children. And she told us that, hey, you got to work hard for what you want. Nobody's going to give you anything and go for what you think you can get. And Clive had a good life up until each passing. He ended up coaching in the U.S. with the national team and different Olympic teams and his University of Washington. John ended up being prosperous with um, doing a green grocery in England. So this was being brought up by the teachings of a little white lady named Jess Charles that gave us good upbringing and good behavioral skills. And when you came in the league as a 17-year-old, not only were you a 17-year-old coming in, but you were one of the first black players in the English first division. And so can you talk about that letter talking about the acid and what that said and what it felt like when you got that as a 17-year-old kid? Well, when it first happened, you're looking at yourself. You're not knowing what to do. You know, what should I do? You know, I am playing in front of these people, giving them my best every week. You're playing well, and they're still not satisfied because they try to intimidate you with other stuff. Now, you're hoping that it's not nobody from your fans that has sent it or one of the home fans. And I still think up until this day, it was probably somebody from the home team that we were playing that Saturday. Now, they sent me a threat about throwing acid in my face as I came through the tunnel. Now, you can imagine someone telling you that and you're saying, I got to play on Saturday. I going to get through this. Well, the first thing I said to myself, I'm not going to stop running. So instead of playing 120 miles an hour, I was probably playing 160 miles an hour <laughs> to keep away from that stuff, you know. 
And I would always be indebted to my coach because I took the letter to him, Ron Greenwood, and we sat down and we tried to work out a plan on how we're going to get through this. And we included the police. I knew a lot of the officers because they walked us through the tunnel on match days. And they devised a plan where I was put in the middle with my teammates and we walked out with the police on both sides. So anybody attempting to do anything had to be careful because the police probably would have beat them to smithereens and our home fans would have probably beat them to smithereens. So it never happened. But thank God it didn't because I wouldn't want to have had something like that happen. And, you know, it wouldn't have been a nice thing. So, as I said, we got through it and I was so glad and happy at the end of the whistle. I mean, when it was time to run out, I was probably the first one in the dressing room, you know, because you don't want nothing to happen to you. And as I said, the part of England we stayed in at the time, a lot of our friends were guys, all different types of guys. We had dockers, we had bus drivers, poor working people. And one thing about the East End, London, I will say is that they look after people like me who was playing football. Like if you came up to me and you're rude and a lot of my friends were there, they're going to let you know, you better leave before something happens to you. And that's the way it was, you know, and they saw my work ethic when I was on the football field, I gave a hundred percent. And that's all they asked because they were hardworking people in East End of London and they appreciate people that give that percentage when they're on the football field because they pay your wages week in and week out. And you learn that. So it's something that you're brought up with. If you're going to play for West Ham, you work hard. You look at young Jesse Lingard right now. He's just come from Manchester United to West Ham. You watch him. He runs his socks off. Mm -hmm. We've had one or two people in the past that we've bought in that have played and they look like a passenger on the field and fans don't like that. So I learned that at an early age, and that's what I tried to do. And as I said, I'm so glad and thankful that the acid throwing never really occurred, you know. Definitely. I'm very glad of that, too. I'm also glad that my Manchester United boy is helping the Hammers. They are currently in a Champions League position as we are at this time of recording. I'm excited that both of our teams are in those Champions League positions. Hopefully that continues. And Lingard's a lad that I have always enjoyed watching play, so I'm glad that he's getting time and I'm mm. glad that he's performing well. But, you know, that was that was just one event that happened. And mm. I, I bring this up because of a few different things, but I, I want to talk more to you about you had chance against you. You had bananas thrown at you. Mm. You had all kinds of things that happened to you as a player simply for the color of your skin, simply because you were somebody that they could take out whatever their just awful aggressions or beliefs were on you. Mm. But what I respect about you, among so many other things, is the way that you responded to those things. And what one of the things that you said in your book, you said you did talk about what your dad told you. You were playing for those who were to come after you. And you said it was the, one of the best pieces of advice I ever had. I had to adapt to my surroundings, simple as that. But there is little doubt that my temperament played a big part. I tell people all the time that if I acted up and kept losing my cool, I think it would have had more, been more difficult for the black players who followed me in terms of image. Being able to deal with situations is something I always seem to have a penchant for. Can you talk about that a little bit more as far as your temperament, but also in today's day and age, as we are in a current fight, and it's likely, unfortunately, going to continue for the foreseeable future, a fight against racism, how do you feel we can practically and effectively combat racism in our world today on an individual and a corporate basis? Well, I think, Phil, lots of times we have to talk about it. You just can't put it on the back burner. You've got to be open about it. You've got to be honest about it. And I think you've got to definitely sit down and discuss what your disputes are. I mean, you have people in the world today that don't know one another from Adam and Eve, but they don't like him. Mm. Now, how can you just look at a person and not like him if you haven't had a conversation with them? That person that you don't like might be more educated than you. You know what I'm saying? So before you discriminate against someone, find out what the person's all about. You know, and you might find out in life that you learn to like the person. 
because of their behavior, the way they carry themselves, because carrying yourself in a certain demeanor has a lot to do with life. You know, and I learned very early, hey, being a sports person, I didn't want to be a sports person that was out bragging about yourself, talking about yourself. Hey, you let your plane do the talking for you. And once you leave the field, you just walk off and go about your business. Now, if you're going to let people in the crowd upset you, you're not going to be able to play. You've got to be strong. You've got to let them people know that you're here for a purpose and you're going to meet your goals and what you set out for yourself. And I knew at an early age that, hey, it wasn't only about me. I want to help the young people coming. I mean, I try to speak to as many of them as possible. And if by me speaking to them is going to hurt them, I will continue to do that because that's what life's all about. You know, I've had my turn. I want to see somebody else have theirs and get to the mountaintop. And the only way you do that, as I said, a lot of this hatred and prejudice is to sit down face to face and discuss it and talk and have dialogue. How do you think that as we're as we're seeing every Saturday, Sunday, ever the games with the kneeling or the no room for racism slogan or Black Lives Matter on shirts, do you think that's effective? Do you think that's something that I've seen some black players in England the last week or so speak out on that to say they're not going to kneel anymore? They don't think it's effective. They don't want to have Black Lives Matter on their shirt anymore for various reasons. What do you think about that, or do you not really have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, my thing, if there are going to be things that they're doing that's going to benefit them and their peers, I don't see a problem with that. Because sometimes in life, you have to make people aware of what is going on. You know, if you're going to just sit there and let things happen and not say nothing, hey, that's not a good thing. If you got owners or people that are mistreating players of color, that's not good. Right. That's not good. The game is about all of us, not just you because you have more money than everybody else. I mean, if we're those players were to go on strike tomorrow, who are you going to get to play? And in England right now, a lot of the players have to understand the power that they had. Because when you look, each team has between five and ten players of color on their team. So those players deserve the same credit of everybody else at the club. So it's all about being open and honest and discussing things that we're doing. And as I said to you earlier, the players playing today are not going to be concerned about themselves. They're going to be concerned about the people coming after them. Mm -hmm. So they make it better for the guys after them. And that's what they must think. I mean, what's wrong with having that on the shirt? What, you feel it? You know, it's... It, it yeah. pierces your back or something, you know, hey, stand up for what is right in the world. And that's what they're doing. And that's the way I see it. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. But those that are talking about giving up and not doing nothing, they better just need to think. Because people went through a lot to get them where they are today, you know? Yeah. And I think that, if I'm not mistaken, I think that the guys, I think one of them was Wilfred Zaha, and then there was another one in the championship who was talking about it. And I, if I'm not mistaken, they were both black young men, and they were talking about the fact that they just thought it was a token thing rather than there actually being action, as you're talking about talking with each other and actually doing things rather than the awareness they feel has already been there and they want more action, which I was just curious to hear. If you had heard that, if you hadn't, then that's fine. But no, I, was just curious I, I, to... I hadn't heard it, but if it is happening, we have a saying in our country related to cricket, if you stay to the wicket, the runs come. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to go give your wicket away, you can't make the runs. So this what the guys have been doing. You know, it's been going on for the last year. Why give up now? Mm -hmm. You know, just keep going for what you believe in. And if you see somebody mean uh, being mistreated badly, let people know. Yeah. It's like they say in America, if you see something, say something. Yep. Don't let it just manifest and continue. Because this day and age, as I said, football is a world game. Everybody plays it. So you need to know that people are treated decently, fairly, equally, and everybody's going to be happy when they get off the field. Absolutely.
And I will say to, to tie it up and, you know, I assume you agree with this. I would encourage you, if you are out there and you have any racist thoughts and you are at any way racist toward anybody or you just discriminate against anybody, I would encourage you to meet some people that are of that, you know, whether it's color, whether it's race, whether it's religion, whatever it may be, to mm. get to know them. And get yeah. to know them as, as human beings and find out what you agree on. Find about what your similarities. Find out who, you know, how you guys are, are the same. Because it's really hard to hate someone that you know and you begin to love and trust. And so I'd say that's the only way to get there. Would you agree with that, Clyde? I think that's a great way, Phil. I think more people need to hear that. Because you're not going to heal anything without discussing it. Finding out what likes, what dislikes, you know, and that's the way to go about doing it. Just don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I don't like him. You never even had a conversation with him. You never even said good morning to him. So these are the avenues that a lot of people in life need to really approach and see what it does for them. Because a person has a certain color, that doesn't make him a bad person. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's kind of shift gears a little bit here and go back to your playing days. Mm. You're playing, you're back in the, the late 1900s and you were playing with all these different players. Who, who would you say, maybe a couple players if there's more than one, but were the best leaders really that you played with in your football career and why? What made them that such a great leader? Well, the best leader I ever played with in my life was Bobby Moore. He was cool, calm, collective. You could never upset him, and he could play the game. He knew the game of football. And I tell people, if he was playing today, what would you pay him? You know, I don't know. I mean, when I see guys making 500000 pounds a week, you probably have to pay Bobby Moore a million dollars a week because that's how good he was. You know, another one would be Franz Beckenbauer. Unbelievable. German captain. Could play the game, had a good brain. You look at Pele. I myself think it's the best player the Lord has ever produced, you know, and I tell people all the time. I think lots of times when we're talking about players, we need to talk about them in their era. And though a person like Pele, he had won all these World Cups, there's nobody else on earth won that many World Cups. So for me, he's labeled the best player in the world for me. Brazil at that time produced tremendous players, footballer players. I mean, if you look at a lot of the guys today versus a lot of them guys back in the day, you would say, hey, they wouldn't be able to do it, you know, because the guys, I'm telling you, people like Garincha, Obama, Didi, you know, all these were players that are the world names. And when you look at the history books to see what they have achieved, it is unbelievable. So I was blessed to be in a time where we had many, many good players. I remember one player that used to play for Tottenham that we ended up buying called Jimmy Greaves. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but Jimmy was a Tottenham Hotspur striker and we traded Jimmy for Martin Peters. Martin Peters was one of the World Cup players. Jimmy was in the World Cup squad too, but he was a fabulous striker. At Tottenham, they talk about Harry Keane, well, I don't know who I'm going to pick, Jimmy Greaser or Harry Key. Mm. I think I would have to go for Jimmy because Jimmy, he knew where the goal was and he made things happen. And what I really liked about Jimmy, he was nowhere as big as Harry Keane is today. He was a small man of stature, but he had a big foot and his left foot was like dynamite. You know, he knew where the goal was and he can give you 20, 30 goals a season. Again, Alan Hudson, Peter Osgood, I can name so many Great players that were playing in my time, Norman Hunter, Jack Child, Bobby Child, Georgie Bess, who I didn't even mention. Yeah. You know, these were all fantastic players. And I was blessed to be given the opportunity to play during that time. And I'm just thankful. Yeah, you actually just mentioned the other best that played mm. during that era, who was probably the lesser best in that time, right? <laughs> well, I'm, I wouldn't say that. I mean, George... <laughs> I just George was a fantastic player, one of the best players Manchester United that have ever signed. And I tell people, again, David Beckham got a lot of accolades from Manchester United. But George Betts, for me, is probably one of the best players that Manchester United ever produced. And George, on his day, if he had played for another country during that time, he probably would have been a World Cup winner. But coming from Northern Ireland, they weren't 
that strong when it came to world football at that time. He was unable to fulfill that, but on ability alone, he's in the top five for me in the world during his time. He was superb. And anybody wants to see, you just turn on that computer and type in George Best. You get to see what he was able to do. And that's it's just so amazing to hear those names that you just mentioned as a leader. I mean, you, you played with Pele. Mm. You played with Franz Beckenbauer, Bobby Moore, Martin Peters, Jeff Hurst, mm. just to name a few, right? I mean, you talk about Clive yeah. Charles. You talk about, you know, a lot of people nowadays here in the West Coast out here think of Clive as the University of Portland coach mm. for a long time. But before that, he played a little football himself, too. And it's just the amazing experiences that you have, which is a lot of the leadership conversation we've had already and we will continue to have, is all about that coming out of that. But there's two things I want to talk about. The first is just a fun conversation. I know that you talk a little bit about in your book. What was it like to play against and with Pele, who you claimed and a lot of others will claim was the best player of all time? And which did you enjoy more, playing with him or playing against him? Well, my first experience with Pele was a game in Rendell's Island. West Ham United had been invited to play at the stadium against Santos. And my ambition and the way I always thought, I said, I'm playing against the best players in the world. I want to show him what I could do. (laughs) Now, when you imagine a person from a place like Bermuda, who only has a population of 60-something thousand, and I'm going up against the best player in the world. But you got to be a strong individual. And my thing was always that if I'm playing against Pele, I'm going to let him know that I can play. We played in this game. Pele goes score two. I scored two. He came up to me after the game. He said, Clyde, I'm the king. You're the prince. <laughs> so for Pele to say that to me, it's unbelievable comment you know and I always made it a point that whenever I played against Pele I'm going to show him that the Prince ain't going nowhere I can still play and score goals against his team because that was something and that was the standard that I always set myself because you're playing against the best player in the world I'm not going to let him show me up and I'm going to go there and play and make sure he's able to sing my praises and He's done that. We went on a tour to Japan once and the Cosmos took me along with him and we were able to play in places of Japan. That was unbelievable. And to play with him on the same field and having been an idol was unbelievable, you know. So that was one great one that I had the pleasure of playing with and befriending up until this day. You know, I haven't seen him for a long time. He's getting on like we all are right now. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he would still remember those matches we had against one another. Now, I remember in the book, you talked about him like Babe Ruth called his home run. Pele called his goal at one point where he just, did he, did he say goal or did he say something before he shot? Well, we were playing New York Cosmos. We played them on the Sunday afternoon in Tampa and we beat them like 6-1 and it was on national television. And they couldn't believe it, you know. I mean, they had just brought in Bacamar. They just brought in Georgia Canalia. They had Pele. And just a bunch of guys from England came over and gave them a good eye. They couldn't believe it because they spent all this money on all these players. So we go to New York on the Wednesday. We were leading 3-1 at halftime. I don't know what Pele told the rest of the players at halftime. But whatever it was, it worked. (laughs) Because they came out in the second half. They weren't the same team. They ended up beating us 5-3. I scored the first three for us. We were leading 3-0 at our time or 3-1 at our time. And I scored all the three. And we come out in the second half. And I'll never forget, Mark Lindsay had a job of being responsible for Pele. And Pele, their goalkeeper, punched the ball out outside the box. He picked the ball up. Uh, a guy, little English guy named Tony Fields, on the left hand side, on the left wing, and Pele played the ball from his box to over Tony Fields' shoulder, and he continued to run down the middle. When he got to the end of the box, he shouted "Goal!" 
because the cross was coming over and he showed a goal. And when the ball went in, we were so mesmerized. How the heck could this guy do this? But we forgot it was Pele. He could do stuff like that. You know what I mean? Right. And my man, my friend that was Mark and Mark Lindsay, he still talks about that today. He was disappointed because Pele called out what he was going to do and it worked, you know? That's so fun. I mean, that, that's what's so cool. It's just what an amazing, as you said, you, you're humbled. You're just so appreciative of these relationships that you've had over the years. You talk about Pele. You've formed a relationship. You talk about mm-hmm. all these other guys where it's not just playing together, but it's relationships. And yeah. can you talk about that, the importance of forming, building, and keeping relationships and, and nurturing relationships and really the golden rule, why it's important to not burn bridges in football and in every area of life and leadership. Well, what you tend to find, Phil, is that when you're playing football, you come in connection or connect with so many different people. So football is no different from everyday life. You know, hey, I'm playing against this good player this week. I'm going to look at him, see what he's doing to make sure that everything's going to come out okay. When the game is finished, you normally go out for a little bite to eat or have a little something to drink, and you just shoot the breeze. And from that sort of thing, you help foster a new friendship. I'm going to tell you another story. Remember once we played Chelsea on this New Year's Day. Now, one of my best friends was Alan Hudson. We used to call him Huddy because Huddy had a lot of tricks, and he was one of these cocky players, but he was good. And Alan would tell you, I'm going to show you tricks today. So we go to Stamford Bridge and play this boxing day, and we beat them 3-1. It was never to be expected. So I saw Holly a few years later, and he says to me, because of you, I got traded to Stoke City, and Peter (laughs) Osgood was traded to um, Southampton. I said, well, because you didn't show no tricks that day, you know? (laughs) So these are the sort of friendships that you foster over the years, and they're with players. I mean, when I get a lot of players coming to Bermuda to vacation or any, a lot of them pick up the phone and call. I think the last one I had, Rodney, I brought him down for a golf tournament I had. He came down, Rodney Marsh, my little mate, Mark Lindsay. And these are relationships that will always be there for as long as we live, you know. And it's not hard to do. You just got to want to redo it. And you do it with respect to one another, not going over boundaries and being disrespectful. You know, you love one another because, hey, if we're playing together, this guy's got to depend on me just like I depend on him. So by doing that sort of stuff, that's how you foster relationships. And if they see you're sincere and you're there for the cause and you're not going to let them down, of course, you're going to have friendships, you know. And like I said earlier, I can go from here to Yugoslavia and foster relationships, all Africa, relationships, France, Holland, Germany, England. Scotland, you know, these are the friends that I've been with over the years and went to war with on the football field and we're friends, we'll be friends today. And that's what life's all about. It's not about being about yourself, for yourself. Hey, the Lord put us here. Let's all respect one another, learn to love one another and get on with one another. You're going to have one or two disputes, but be man about it and look each other in the eye and say to him, hey, Phil, what you've done is wrong. I'm your friend. I'm not going to hurt you. So if you respect the information I'm going to give you, we can have a decent relationship. But if you're going to deny that, what I'm giving you, I'm going to look at you twice and say, hey, this guy's not serious about a friendship. And good friends look after one another. You uphold one another. You respect one another. And you can tell each other, anything you want and you're going to take it it's up to you to take it too hard or look at it and see the difference between right or wrong remember when we first had you guys in san clemente we used to tell you hey we don't expect to win every game we would like to <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know you're a young guys coming up and we only can teach you what we were taught ourselves as coaches and it's important to develop relationships with friends because you never know when you might see him or might want to get in touch with him again, because if you had a bad relationship, it's not going to foster into anything. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think as reading through the book that I remember you taught us, my parents taught mm-hmm. 
I teach my kids and tell everyone mm-hmm. who I who will listen. You know, whether I'm at a university or whatever. My mom, I never forget her telling me when I was a kid, never burn bridges. Never burn bridges, right? Treat everyone like you're going to work with them someday or you're going to be their teammate someday, right? And, and we talked about that when you were coaching us. You said, hey, you never know. You'll, you'll probably be playing with these guys in college or later on at some point. But with that, what was really interesting is because if you get his book, which I, again, recommend, and you read the back of it, it ta- has all these testimonials from other people, teammates, people he played against, coaches, all kinds of different people. And all of them were just giving praise to the man that Clyde is. Yes, the player, but more the man. And and I will say that not to say, oh, not to just pump up Clyde because he doesn't need that, but in order to ask for it, nor does he want it. But it's just to show that this isn't just, these aren't just words coming out of his mouth. This is something that you never know who you're going to come across later in life. And it's not like, oh, you never know what you're going to need for him. No, it's how can we work together? How can we encourage each other? How can we love each other? How can we help each other? And it was interesting to see in your book that not only were your teammates people that you ran into later, but people that you played against when you were in England, you end up playing with in the NASL or in the indoor mm. league, or you, you know, again, were coached by or coached with or... And so what did that look like? And what can that teach us about, again, life off the pitch and in business in other areas of life? Well, I would always thank my mom for that because she brought us all up in a certain way to always treat people the way you want to be treated. And if you do that in life, you can't go wrong. And I live by that up until this day. And I believe in that. You know, if I'm going to call you names, you're going to call me names that's natural but if I'm going to respect you you're going to respect me and it's just basic principles but a lot of people don't know it and a lot of people don't practice that so that's where I get a lot of that from is the upbringing and I tell people all the time when you have children you have to bring them up in a certain way you can't let them come in and want to dictate everything to you the parent the other child and I'm sure your mom and dad tell you the same thing, you Absolutely. know, because we come from the same marriage, so to speak. So, and that's what life's all about, Phil. You know, you can be out there in the world and not looking to see what's going on and everything will pass you right by. And when you look, you're trying to play catch up. So it's important that parents understand that as a parent, you have a responsibility and your responsibility is to your children. And what you do as a parent is to make sure that the children do and behave in a certain way so that when you're out, they don't embarrass you. Because children at three and four are cute, as we all say, but they can be cute and rude. Mm-hmm. So you got to step in at an early age to prevent that sort of stuff happening. And if you do that, you look at you and your brother, you know your mom and dad done a fantastic job. Because you're teaching your children the same practices that your mom and dad taught you. And that's what life's all about. It carries on and it goes around. So that's the way it should be in life. Absolutely. And you talk about that and you look at not only parents, but coaches. You know, coaches, you Mm. have responsibility to train up your players, not just as X's and O's, but as human beings and teachers. And I look at it as any leader. You are influencing them, not just in what you have in front of you as a job or as a game, but as life. You have a privilege, a responsibility, and an honor, really, to be able to have lives in your hands that you have the ability to impact and influence, hopefully for the good. But I look at that and go, when you're playing, though, right? So let's just go to the game itself. You're playing. Back when you played... It's a pretty soft game today compared to when you played. I mean, I think you'll agree with me on that. You guys beat each other up quite a bit more. But right. if I looked at that, I saw some guys who, you you know, I'm guessing you went to battle. Like when you say battle, like you battled on the field, I'm guessing. But they wrote oh, about yeah. you like you were a brother. So what does that oh, look yeah. like after the game or is it during the game? Like, How do you gain that respect when you're playing against each other and you probably don't have a whole lot of time together after the game or before the game? So what does that look like in practice so people can learn from as far as whether it's in business or in any other area of life, when you're battling with people, it doesn't have to be a battle every, every minute of every day. Well, I think the most important thing to remember when you're playing as a professional player, you've got to give it your all. And if I'm playing against you and I have to knock you over, I'm going to do it. 
Mm-hmm. I'll pick you up and say, Phil, get up. I'm sorry, you know, but hey, I'm doing the job. And I think most players understand that, you know, and they respect people for that. And if they see you giving your all and you're running your socks off, they're going to say to you, hey, this guy means business. And players respect people like that. Most players will tell you they don't like soft people, people that are going to be on the field. I'm going to get my paycheck and his costing us to lose and stuff like that. They don't want that sort of stuff. They want people to give 100%, 110%. I was talking to a friend yesterday from England. I was telling him he just wrote a book about a good friend of mine, Billy Buns. And I said, one thing about Billy Buns, Billy Buns always gave you 110, 120% week in, week out. That's the sort of player you want to be associated with because you know you can rely on him. Because you must remember on every game day, everybody is not going to be able to play the same way. You're going to have to carry certain people. If I like you, I'm going to try and give that same 110% that you're giving. But if I don't like you or don't get on with you, you know, I might just slacken off a little bit. So it's important that when you're playing with your teammates, you respect, live, like one another, your old teammates, you know, and you're on the field, you're in the same battle. And you want to make sure that your team wins the battle. And that's very important because if you don't play as a team and fight for the same cause, you're not going to go very far. Well, I know that you need to get going today. But the good news, folks, is that we're going to continue this conversation hopefully soon. And we'll get that episode out. We'll have a part two to this conversation and maybe a three. Who knows if if Clyde will do us that honor. But we're going to get back and continue this conversation and talk about mentorship and integrity and hard work. And we'll even get into some of the really important things like whether VAR is a good thing for the game or not. You know, and some other things that I I have no doubt that you folks out there will love to hear from Clyde as well as we'll get deeper into the leadership conversation as well when we're able to do that. But Clyde, thanks for joining us for this first part of this interview. I'm, I'm so honored and privileged and just absolutely love this conversation. It's a pleasure. Remember what we always said, friends do good things for friends. And that's what life's all about. Yeah, I love so that. So it's always a pleasure here with being with you. And thanks very much for having me on tonight. Okay? Definitely. Thank you. And folks out there, thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for your download. I just encourage you go to the Facebook group for uh, How Soccer Explains Leadership if you want to get in the conversation deeper. You can also now, we're on the Clubhouse app, just connect with me, Phil Dark, there, and we can have conversations there. would love to, again, engage this conversation much deeper with you. Most importantly right now, folks, I just hope that you're taking all that you're learning and you're using it to help you and your leadership in your life, in every area of your life, and really helping you to understand how soccer does explain life and leadership. Thanks a lot. Have a great week.